At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Judge Chutkin hits the gas. Judge Engeron hits the roof. Judge Cannon does not hit the pause button. But let me start at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, where Dementia J. Trump's lawyers last night filed a 35-page document, one or two paragraphs of which asks that the court bar Judge Tanya Chutkin from reinstating the gag order against Trump, the rest of which is about how wonderful Trump is and how much he leads in the primary polls. And it sounds like the dialogue they gave Rita Moreno in the last scene of the Jack Nicholson movie, Carnal Knowledge. Fourth paragraph of page one of the introduction, quote, President Trump's uniquely powerful voice has been a fixture of American political discourse for eight years and central to the American fabric for decades. Well, true, like car alarms or herpes. Page 11, item four, quote, the gag order violates the rights of tens of millions of Americans to receive President Trump's speech. A restriction on President Trump's speech inflicts a reciprocal injury on the rights of over 100 million Americans who listen to him about how big and strong he is and is better, more beautiful, more powerful, more perfect, more strong, more masculine, more extraordinary, more virile, domineering, more irresistible, and more up in the air. I added a little something to that at the end. Now as to the actual election subversion trial, where any sense that any of the many delaying tactics of Dementia J's legal team or their big motion to dismiss the whole case because it's unfair to uh, charge a criminal with uh, with crimes, your honor, that any of that was going to get them anything other than more billable hours that Trump will someday stiff them on that has vanished with the issuance of what in every other trial would be just another procedural memo, but what in this one is a metaphorical backhand slap across Trump's pouchy face. Quote, the court will use a written questionnaire in advance of in-person jury selection, Judge Chutkin announces. Prosecution and defense should negotiate what's in that. They should submit it to her on January 9th. That's 68 days from now, before you subtract the holidays. And if the lawyers can't agree on the wording of the questionnaire, they need to tell her what's in dispute. Then, quote, 
after review and approval by the court, the questionnaire will be distributed to prospective jurors summoned to complete it at the courthouse on February 9, 2024, unquote. And that's 99 days from now before subtracting the holidays. And all that means is she intends to start this trial on the announced date, March 4th. And that's 123 days from now. Judge Chutkin went on to warn both sides that they can research potential jurors, but if they dox any of them, she will come down on them like a ton of bricks, and she ain't looking at Jack Smith when she says that. Quote, no party may provide jurors identifying information to any other entity, parenthesis, e.g., the defendant's campaign, unquote. That shot across Trump's bow is delicious. But the import of the Chutkin ruling is that it underscores Jack Smith's message to Trump's concierge judge in Florida, Eileen Cannon. You will recall that on Wednesday, Cannon made all the kinds of noises pretend judges make before they are going to do something inappropriate or biased or reeking of corruption. The same kind of dilatory time wasters that Chutkin just swatted away in Washington without even bothering to acknowledge them, Cannon accepted tenderly and did everything but swaddle them in baby clothes. I'm having a hard time seeing how this work can be accomplished in this compressed period of time, she said, while metaphorically beaming at the man who lifted her from among 6,000 assistant U.S. attorneys to a judgeship she was totally unprepared for. She spoke to the prosecutor then as if he were misguided, misled, miseducated. I'm not seeing in your position a level of understanding to these realities. And she hinted that as soon as the next day, yesterday, she might be making reasonable adjustments to the Florida documents case, pre-trial schedule, that could slide the start of that trial from May 14th until after the primaries or after the convention or after the election. And then she sat back as if waiting overnight would reduce the obviousness of her dual role as Trump's judge and one of Trump's lawyers. And then overnight came and went, and the sun rose and set, and Judge Cannon ruled nothing. And that was because Jack Smith's team filed a brief overnight Wednesday that explained to Judge Cannon that it was obvious she had missed the fact that Trump and his attorneys had pulled the rug out from under her, and that it was obvious to everybody in the world except her that they were all playing her like the proverbial $2 banjo. Here she was, ready to postpone, delay, or otherwise string out the Florida trial on the excuse that he had so much prep for the Florida trial that it would crash into the schedule for the Washington trial. But Trump had already filed not just a motion to dismiss the Washington trial, but was filing another motion to delay the Washington trial indefinitely until they get every court except Judge Wapner's to rule on this thing they made up called presidential immunity. In short, Cannon was about to delay her trial so Trump could concentrate on the Washington trial while Trump was busy demanding that they delay the Washington trial, too. Quote, as the government argued to the court Wednesday, the trial date in the District of Columbia case should not be a determinative factor in the court's decision whether to modify the dates in this matter. Defendant Trump's actions... And by the way, how nice is it to hear or say the phrase defendant Trump? Defendant Trump's actions in the hours following the hearing in the case illustrate the point and confirm his overriding interest in delaying both trials at any cost. Smith and Jay Bratt's filing then closes with what seems like an unfortunate typo, but which really reads more like a Freudian slip warning Eileen Cannon what a fool she is making of herself. Quote, this court should allow itself to be manipulated in this fashion. Of course, they meant should not allow. But if you read it as written, and that's about you, you should allow yourself to be manipulated in this fashion. I think it would make your cheeks burn. Wait, I am allowing myself to be manipulated. Regardless, Cannon's response to that filing was... Nothing. Nothing that we know of, anyway. I would still not hold out much hope that she will do the right thing. She's still on the case. 
even though if there is an in-person hearing a week from Monday, Trump's attorneys really should bring in a cake celebrating the third anniversary of her appointment by the defendant. Still, corruption delayed could always turn out to be corruption denied. Where there's hope of honesty, there's life or something. Or, as the judicial website AboveTheLaw.com perfectly headlined its story on this farce, Trump demands delay in Florida case to accommodate delay in D.C. case to accommodate delay in dot, dot, dot. Before getting to the fracas here in New York, in which for once, Trump himself is actually an innocent bystander. One more note about Eileen Cannon. If you saw it, and it was everywhere, and you don't know that the purported Trump social media post about Cannon was a fake, it was a fake. It had him saying that she was the best judge since King David, and she gets the next Supreme Court opening. And given the bottomless pit of Trumpian corruption, it sounds utterly plausible. But there was a series of tells. First, content. Whoever wrote it refers to, quote, Looney Jack Smith, and he has never called him Looney. It's too endearing. Secondly, how in the hell would Trump, who kept not a Bible by his bed, but rather a copy of Hitler's favorite speeches, how in the hell would he know who King David was? Then there are the technical tells. Is it on his social media site? And if it isn't, which it wasn't, how come every time you see the screenshot, it's exactly the same one with the same font? Wouldn't more than one person have screenshotted something that would be that stupid even for Trump? I mean, there are literally dozens of reporters with burner accounts on Trump's site waiting for things like that, who get alerts for things like that, and only one of them got the screenshot? If you're going to bite on the fake ones, only bite on the good fake ones. Also, everything, including the word adjudicated, was spelled correctly. Now to New York. It looked like the civil fraud trial of Trump and Jr. and Moron Jr. and Girl Jr. was going to be highlighted by Jr.'s admission that, sure, he signed all those fraudulent financial statements, but that doesn't mean he's responsible for what's in those fraudulent financial statements. Or if not that... Then it was going to be highlighted by Moron Jr., who yesterday testified under oath that he never heard of the company's statement of financial condition until recently. And then they showed him an email where employees were told that he was working on the company's statement of financial condition. But then something happened that caused Judge Arthur Engeron to literally pound on the bench and shout, if there is any further reference to anyone on my staff, I would consider expanding the gag order to include the attorneys, unquote. More amazing still, what caused that had nothing to do with any of the Trumps. But instead, it was about their attorney, Chris Keis. He complained to the bench about the court clerk, you know, the one Trump doxed. And in that paroxysm of paranoia, he claimed she was Chuck Schumer's girlfriend. And, and now she was passing notes to the judge and Keis complained about it. That's right, the judge shouted. Confidential communications for my record. Absolute right to it. You don't have any right to see it. While it would be joyful to think that Trump has actually only hired lawyers like Alina Haba and the other one, the one who vanished, the lawyer slash spokesmodel, Christina something, whatever happened to her? It would be joyful to think that he'd only hired lawyers who are even worse at legal stuff than he is. Courtroom observers believe that this one, Mr. Keis, may have actually pulled off a brilliant bit of performance art and actually taken one for the team. This theory states that instead of writing about how Eric Trump seemingly perjured himself about the Trump statement of financial condition and the fact that it sure looks like Eric only began to develop amnesia about company financials in 2020 as the attorney general's investigation began, instead of that, everybody is writing about the clerk and the gag order again. And the judge yelling. And as a bonus, when they are writing about those things, they also aren't mentioning Dementia J. Supporting this theory is the startling realization that there could actually have been 
an entire day in a courtroom somewhere in the world in which Donald Trump's name did not come up at all. But he can never leave well enough alone. Nor can he leave bad enough alone, for that matter. Dementia J attacked Engeron online again at midday, and then he did something even weirder. Quote, our corrupt attorney general sits on her ass in court all day watching the Trump family. Unquote. So, Defendant Trump, how long have you been obsessed by Letitia James's backside? There is one more Trump trial note. It was a light day, only five of them in progress. At the 14th Amendment disqualification hearing in Colorado, Trump's team called as witnesses the just-announced-his-retirement representative Ken Buck, the woman who organized the January 6th rally, and the chief of staff to Congressman Bat Guano, Paul Gozar. Ken Buck stumbled all over the so-called Republican evidence about the insurrection, saying the January 6th committee left out Jim Jordan's side of the story, which immediately reminded the court that Jim Jordan ignored first an invitation to testify to the committee and then a subpoena from the committee. Jim Jordan. Remember Jim Jordan? But the part about that that knocked me out was the part that again supports my conviction that whatever Trump's brain problem is, it is getting worse and rapidly so. Ken Buck testified on Trump's behalf in court at about 9 a.m. local time yesterday. Not 12 hours earlier, Trump had written, quote, good news for the country. Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado, a weak and ineffective super rhino, if ever there was one, announced today that he won't be running again, which is a great thing for the Republican Party. Bad news for Ken Buck. That's the same Trump whose subversion you defended under oath. Worse news for Trump. Now Ken Buck also knows that if you are loyal to Trump, you can rest assured that you can rely on him for the rest of your life. He will never forget to not give a damn who you are or what you did for him. A little closer to home, this is year 25 of the part of my career I've spent covering politics and rarely do headlines surprise me anymore. But to be fair, a hat tip to the writers of this part of our current timeline, quote, U.S. investigating whether New York Mayor Eric Adams received illegal donations from Turkey. A raid at the home of his chief fundraiser was part of an inquiry into whether foreign money was funneled into his mayoral campaign, a search warrant shows. I wonder how he's going to claim this was all God's doing. Anybody who has lived in this city for longer than 22 minutes knows that when the mayor leaves for Washington to try to get money for something, and when he gets there, he suddenly cancels the meetings and heads right back to New York that something good is in the microwave. And then it came, the news yesterday that the FBI had raided the top donation wrangler of his campaign, the woman who doubles as one of his key agenda operatives, always pushing the mayor wants this and the mayor wants that. Finally, out comes the warrant and the backstory, novel even for this city and its Madame Tussauds collection of corrupt mayors. There is a Brooklyn construction company involved. It has ties to Turkey. There is Bay Atlantic University in Washington, which has 600 students, but no Wikipedia page, but it's owned by people in Turkey. And it has ties to Mayor Adams. Then there's the mayor himself, who's boasted he's traveled six or seven times to Turkey. There are donors who are in the ledger books, but don't seem to actually exist, or at least to have donated. And there are allegedly kickbacks to the construction company and to Turkey. And I will just state for the record, Mr. Chairman, don't blame me. I voted for the garbage commissioner lady. Back to Washington, Drooping Johnson Watch Day 9, the new fifth-string speaker passed his support Israel, don't support Ukraine, don't you dare let the IRS investigate rich Republican tax evaders bill. He even got 12 Democratic votes for it. It will go to the Senate, where there is not a chance in hell of it passing, and Ukraine will be put back in, and the defunding of the IRS that will expand the deficit will be taken back out. 
But that's not the point. The point is that once again, this Johnson's weird ejaculations. What? Dictionary definition of ejaculation is something said quickly and suddenly. What? What this guy says about he's not playing politics with aid to Israel. This bothers me. It bothers me because it's clear that Mike Johnson does not realize that we all can see him. And now, as Israel begins the next phase of its war, it's been kind of disturbing to us. I've heard Democrats uh, suggest that there needs to be a ceasefire. Israel doesn't need a ceasefire. It needs its allies to cease with the politics and deliver support now. And that's what we're doing. House Republicans plan to do that. We're going to do it in short order, and it provides Israel the aid it needs to defend itself, free its hostages, and eradicate Hamas, which is a mission that must be accomplished. All of this, all of this, while we also work to ensure responsible spending and reduce the size of the federal government to pay for that commitment to our friend and ally. We cannot waste any time getting Israel the aid it needs. We're going to work on that. Right. No politics and no delay. Other than the part about Ukraine, which I guess is kind of relevant because they're both wars. Oh, and the part about the IRS, which has got nothing to do with Israel. It's pure. It's pure politics. Three-year-old child could see that. Any one of my dogs could see that. There is the terrifying prospect that Mike Johnson might not be this stupid. He might actually believe He's getting away with it. And lastly, speaking of Johnsons, there's Lauren Boebert. She and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Chip Roy in a three-way war of words. It began with a post by Roy explaining why he moved to stop the vote to censure Representative Tlaib. Then Barney Rubble, Marjorie Taylor Greene, subtweeted him. You voted to kick me out of the Freedom Caucus but kept CNN wannabe Ken Buck and vaping, groping Lauren Boebert. All right, vaping, groping Lauren Boebert? Sure. Roy replied to that, tell her to go chase so-called Jewish space lasers if she wants to spend time on that sort of thing. And Green then responded, oh, shut up, Colonel Sanders, and predicted that this would all end with him reciting, quote, powdered wig soliloquies as Americans are marched to the firing squads. And no, that's where they lost me. I don't get that reference either. Curiously silent through all this, though, was vaping, groping Lauren Boebert. Sources say she's simply sitting there quietly trying to get a grip on the situation. I made that last part up. Also of interest here, oops, turns out there are more skeletons in the closet of Dean Phillips, the gelato king and Minnesota congressman who is challenging Biden in the primaries. But it's just a coincidence that Harlan Crow has contributed to Dean's campaign. When Harlan Crow might not be your biggest problem, you've got some closet. That's next. This is Countdown. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. 
And we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Still ahead on Countdown in the dear dead days of the early 1970s, when innocence and naivete consumed us all, my dad and I were flying to Boston for some reason, and for some reason, there was a passenger who pissed us off. Another passenger in the line to get the tickets, maybe? And he sat near us in the waiting room, so as we sat there in the waiting room at LaGuardia, my dad and I began to on a totally ad hoc, unplanned basis, try to scare the crap out of the guy because he had annoyed us. I didn't think they allowed that on planes, I began. My dad winked at me. I didn't think they allowed anything like that on commercial flights. He nodded me to keep going. Well, I said, I didn't think you could put explosives on any plane in this country. The guy sitting near us looked alarmed and then quickly moved away. Mission accomplished. I do not believe that by that point in my life I had read The Lady on 142 by James Thurber, but I might have, and it might have inspired that impromptu and really evil practical joke at that airport. You'll hear why next in Fridays with Thurber and The Lady on 142. First time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Worse, Congressman Dean Phillips, the Harlan Crow-funded, quote, Democrat, unquote, who is challenging President Biden in the primaries because he thinks Biden is too old. And remember the polling. It does not matter if anybody thinks Biden is too old. It only matters if everybody thinks Trump is too old. Anywho, Daily Beast reports he's so rich, Dean Phillips is, that he's the Talenti gelato guy that he has his own secret holding company and he buys real estate through it in order to lower his tax liability. So his purchase of his one and a half million dollar town home in D.C., it was bought not by Dean Phillips nor by his wife, but by Anna D. LLC, which is legal, except for one problem. He is a member of Congress, after all, and his financial transactions are supposed to be transparent, except there's no record of this one or of him owning the LLC in question. Oops. Maybe Harlan Crow owns it. Worser, a Fox News tie between two of the true scumbags on that channel, little Jesse Waters, who broke in as Bill O'Reilly's henchman and procurer and stalker, and who went on Fox and said of Arab Americans who are for some reason against all or just part of the tragedy in the Middle East, Quote, we've had it with them. And so if you're an Arab American in this country, no, 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 someone is going to get punched in the face, unquote. Apparently that someone turns out to be, at least metaphorically, Waters, who was not on either of his shows yesterday. Rumor is he's been suspended. Then there's Mark Levin of Fox, whose voice is so bad, he sounds like somebody scraping aluminum siding with barbecue tongs. His voice is so bad he will never get a weeknight show on Fox, but he is on on the weekends. And he was nice enough recently to call Jake Tapper of CNN a, quote, self-hating Jew. 
And now he says Wolf Blitzer's, quote, parents weren't victims in one way or another of the Holocaust. And you can see where this guy is going. Wolf Blitzer's parents fled Poland after all four of his grandparents were killed during the Holocaust, murdered. His maternal grandparents were murdered at Auschwitz. This is not enough for Levin, and you could call Levin self-hating, but he doesn't have time for that. He's too busy hating everybody else. A truly sick and disgusting creature. But our winners, hockey's Anaheim Ducks. Saturday, and I think you've probably heard about this, the former Pittsburgh Penguin player Adam Johnson died during a professional hockey game in England when his neck was devastatingly cut by the skate of another player. That league immediately mandated that all players in it wear neck guards. The National Hockey League seems to be moving towards that too. Many players around the league immediately voluntarily began to wear them, at least in practices. But in Anaheim? The Ducks social media team yesterday posted a slow motion video of Anaheim goon Radko Gudis with a legal mid-ice hip check of Arizona's Clayton Keller with the caption, Beware the Butcher. After Gudis hit Keller, both players crumpled to the ice and first, Gudis's left skate just missed hitting Keller's unprotected neck, maybe by a foot, and then Gudis's right skate literally bumped up against the side of Keller's head, his helmet, missing his neck again by just a couple of inches. Beware the butcher. And the Anaheim Ducks decided to celebrate that play and use the term butcher while police in England are still investigating exactly how a skate to the neck killed Adam Johnson on ice six days ago. The Anaheim Ducks, as they say, read the effing room today's worst persons in the world. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. the number one story on the countdown and it is fridays with thurber and thus the number one story on the countdown is fridays with james thurber many of the great writers great stories the short stories the fables have great meaning or symbolism and some of them are just great fun let me give you one of the latter from the thurber carnival it will explain itself fairly quickly the lady on 142 by james thurber the train was 20 minutes late, we found out, when we bought our tickets. So we sat down on a bench in the little waiting room of the Cornwall Bridge Station. It was too hot outside in the sun. This midsummer Saturday had got off to a sulky start, and now, at 3 in the afternoon, it sat sticky and restive in our laps. There were several others besides Sylvia and myself waiting for the train to get in from Pittsfield, 
an older woman who fanned herself with the daily news, a young lady in her 20s reading a book, a slender, tanned man sucking dreamily on the stem of an unlighted pipe. In the center of the room, leaning against a high iron radiator, a small girl stared at each of us in turn, her mouth open, as if she had never seen people before. The place had the familiar pleasant smell of railroad stations in the country, of something compounded of wood and leather and smoke. In the cramped space behind the ticket window, a telegraph instrument clicked intermittently, and once or twice a phone rang and the station master answered it briefly. I couldn't hear what he said. I was glad on such a day that we were going only as far as Gaylordsville, the third stop down the line, 22 minutes away. The station master had told us that our tickets were the first tickets to Gaylordsville he'd ever sold. I was idly pondering this small distinction when a train whistle blew in the distance. We all got to our feet, but the station master came out of his cubbyhole and told us it was not our train, but the 1245 from New York northbound. Presently, the train thundered in like a hurricane and sighed ponderously to a stop. The station master went out into the platform and came back after a minute or two. The train got heavily underway again for Canaan. I was opening a pack of cigarettes when I heard the station master talking on the phone again. This time, his words came out clearly. He kept repeating one sentence. He was saying, Conductor Reagan on 142 has the lady the office was talking about. The person on the other end of the line did not appear to get the meaning of the sentence. The station master repeated it and hung up. For some reason, I figured that he did not understand it either. Sylvia's eyes had the lost, reflective look they wear when she's trying to remember in what box she packed the Christmas tree ornaments. The expressions on the faces of the older woman, the young lady, and the man with the pipe had not changed. The little staring girl had gone away. Our train was not due for another five minutes, and I sat back and began trying to reconstruct the lady on 142, the lady conductor Reagan had, the lady the office was asking about. I moved nearer to Sylvia and whispered, See if the trains are numbered in your timetable. She got the timetable out of her handbag and looked at it. 142, she said, is the 1245 from New York. This was the train that had gone by a few minutes before. The woman was taken sick, said Sylvia. They're probably arranging to have a doctor or her family meet her. The older woman looked around at her briefly. The young woman, who had been chewing gum, stopped chewing. The man with the pipe seemed oblivious. I lighted a cigarette and sat thinking. The woman on 142, I said to Sylvia, flatly, might be almost anything, but she is definitely not sick. The only person who did not stare at me was the man with the pipe. Sylvia gave me her temperature-taking look, a cross between anxiety and vexation. Just then, our train whistled and we all stood up. I picked up our two bags, and Sylvia took the sack of string beans we had picked up for the Connells. When the train came clanking in, I said in Sylvia's ear, He'll sit near us. You watch. Who? Who will? She said. The stranger, I told her. The man with the pipe. Sylvia laughed. He's not a stranger, she said. He works for the breeds. I was certainly that he did not work for the breeds. Women like to place people. Every stranger reminds them of somebody. The man with the pipe was sitting three seats in front of us across the aisle when we got settled. I indicated him with a nod of my head. Sylvia took a book out of the top of her overnight bag and opened it. What's the matter with you? She demanded. I looked around before replying. A sleepy man and woman sat across from us. Two middle-aged women in the seat in front of us were discussing the severe, griping pain one of them had experienced as a result of inflamed diverticulitis. A slim, dark-eyed young woman sat in the seat behind us. She was alone. The trouble with women, I began, is that they explain everything by illness. 
I have a theory that we could be celebrating the 12th of May or even the 16th of April as Independence Day if Mrs. Jefferson hadn't got the idea her husband had a fever and put him to bed. Sylvia found her place in the book. We've been all through that before, she said. Why couldn't the woman on 142 be sick? That was easy, I told her. Conductor Reagan, I said, got off the train at Cornwall Bridge and spoke to the station master. I've got the woman the office was asking about, he said. Sylvia cut in. He said lady. I gave the little laugh that annoys her. All conductors say lady, I explained. Now, if a woman had got sick on the train, Reagan would have said, a woman got sick on my train, tell the office. What must have happened is that Reagan found somewhere between Kent and Cornwall Bridge a woman the office had been looking for. Sylvia did not close her book, but she looked up. Maybe she got sick before she got on the train and the office was worried, said Sylvia. She was not giving the problem close attention. If the office knew she got on the train... I said patiently, they wouldn't have asked Reagan to let them know if he found her. They would have told him about her when she got on. Sylvia resumed her reading. Let's stay out of it, she said. It isn't any of our business. I hunted for my chicklets, but couldn't find them. It might be everybody's business, I said. Every patriot's. I know, I know, said Sylvia. You think she's a spy. Well, I think she's sick. I ignored that. Every conductor on the line has been asked to look out for her. I said, Reagan found her. She won't be met by her family. She'll be met by the FBI. Or the OPA, said Sylvia. Alfred Hitchcock things don't happen on the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. I saw the conductor coming from the other end of the couch. I'm going to tell the conductor, I said, that Reagan on 142 has got the woman. No, you're not, said Sylvia. You're not going to get us in mixed up in this. He probably knows anyway. The conductor, short, stocky, silver-haired, and silent, took up our tickets. He looked like a kindly ickies. Sylvia who had stiffened, relaxed when I let him go by without a word about the woman on 142. He looks exactly as if he knew where the Maltese falcon is hidden, doesn't he? said Sylvia with the laugh that annoys me. Nevertheless, I pointed out, you said a little while ago that he probably knows about the woman on 142. If she's just sick, why should they tell the conductor on this train? I'll rest more easily when I know that they've actually got her. Sylvia kept reading as if she hadn't heard me. I leaned my head against the back of the seat and closed my eyes. The train was slowing down noisily and a brakeman was yelling, Kent! Kent! When I felt a small, cold pressure against my shoulder. Oh! The voice of the woman in the seat behind me said, I've dropped my copy of Coronet under your seat. She leaned closer, and her voice became low and hard. "'Get off here, mister,' she said. "'We're going to Gaylordsville,' I said. "'You and your wife are getting off here, mister,' she said. I reached for the suitcases on the rack. "'What do you want, for heaven's sake?' asked Sylvia. "'We're, uh, getting off here,' I told her. "'Are you really crazy?' she demanded. "'This is only Kent.' "'Come on, sister,' said the woman's voice. You take the overnight bag and the beans. You take the big bag, mister. Sylvia was furious. I knew you'd get us into this, she said to me, shouting about spies at the top of your voice. That made me angry. You're the one who mentioned spies, I told her. I didn't. You kept talking about it and talking about it, said Sylvia. Come on, get off, the two of you, said the cold, hard voice. We got off. As I helped Sylvia down the steps, I said, We know too much. Oh, shut up, she said. We didn't have far to go. A big black limousine waited a few steps away. Behind the wheel sat a heavy-set foreigner with cruel lips and small eyes. 
He scowled when he saw us. The boss don't want nobody up there, he said. It's all right, Carl, said the woman. Get in, she told us. We climbed into the back seat. She sat between us with the gun in her hand. It was a handsome, jeweled Derringer. Alice will be waiting for us at Gaylordsville, said Sylvia, in all this heat. The house was a long, low, rambling building reached at the end of a poplar-lined drive. Never mind the bags, said the woman. Sylvia took the string beans and her book, and we got out. Two huge mastiffs came bounding off the terrace, snarling. Down, Mata, said the woman. Down, Pedro. They slunk away, still snarling. Sylvia and I sat side by side on a sofa in a large, handsomely appointed living room. Across from us, in a chair, lounged a tall man with heavily lidded black eyes and long, sensitive fingers. Against the door through which we had entered the room, leaned a thin, undersized young man with his hands in the pockets of his coat and a cigarette hanging from his lower lip. He had a drawn, sallow face and his small, half-closed eyes stared at us incuriously. In a corner of the room, a squat, swarthy man twiddled with the dials of a radio. The woman paced up and down, smoking a cigarette in a long holder. "'Well, Gale,' said the lounging man in a soft voice, to what do we owe this unexpected visit? Gail kept pacing. They got Sandra, she said finally. The lounging man did not change expression. Who got Sandra, Gail? He asked softly. Reagan on 142, said Gail. The squat, swarthy man jumped to his feet. All the time Egypt say kill this Reagan! he shouted. All the time Egypt say, bump off this Reagan. The lounging man did not look at him. Sit down, Egypt, he said quietly. The swarthy man sat down. Gale went on talking. The punk here shot off his mouth, he said. He was wise. I looked at the man leaning against the door. She means you, said Sylvia, who laughed. The dame was dumb, Gail went on. She thought the lady on the train was sick. Now I laughed. She means you, I said to Sylvia. The punk was blowing his top all over the train, said Gail. I had to bring him along. Sylvia, who had the beans on her lap, began breaking and stringing them. Well, my dear lady, said the lounging man, a most homely little touch. Was a touch? demanded Egypt. Touch, I told him. Gail sat down in a chair. Who's going to rub him out? she asked. Freddy, said the lounging man. Egypt was on his feet again. Nah, nah, he shouted. Not the punk. The punk bump off the last six, seven people. The lounging man looked at him. Egypt paled and sat down. I thought you were the punk, said Sylvia. I looked at her coldly. I know where I have seen you before, I said to the lounging man. It was at Zagreb in 1927. Tilden took you in straight sets. Six love, six love, six love. The man's eyes glittered. I think I bump off this man myself, he said. Freddy walked over and handed the lounging man an automatic at this moment, the door Freddy had been leaning against burst open, and in rushed the man with the pipe, shouting, Gale! 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 Gaylordsville! Gaylordsville! bawled the brakeman. Sylvia was shaking me by the arm. Quit moaning, she said. Everybody's looking at you. I rubbed my forehead with a handkerchief. Hurry up, she said, Sylvia said. They don't stop here long. I pulled the bags down, and, and we got off. Have you got the beans? I asked Sylvia. Alice Connell was waiting for us. On the way to their home in the car, Sylvia began to tell Alice about the woman on 142. I didn't say anything. He thought she was a spy, said Sylvia. They both laughed. She probably got sick on the train, said Alice. They were probably arranging for a doctor to meet her at the station. That's just what I told him, said Sylvia. 
I lighted a cigarette. The lady on 142, I said firmly, was definitely not sick. Oh, Lord, said Sylvia. Here we go again. The Lady on 142 by James Thurber. I love that one. I have never gotten on a train since the first time I read that one, which was probably 40 years ago. Never gotten on a train in summer in the daytime without thinking about the lady on 142. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully studio at the Olderman Broadcasting Empire World Headquarters here in New York. Countdown musical directors Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel arranged, produced, and performed most of our music. Mr. Chanel handled orchestration and keyboards. Mr. Ray was on guitars, bass, and drums, and it was produced by TKO Brothers. Other music, including some Beethoven, arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. Sports music, courtesy of ESPN Inc. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis. We call it the Olderman theme from ESPN2. Our satirical and pithy musical comments are by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Howard Feynman. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 1,032nd day since Dementia J. Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Convict him now while we still can. The next scheduled Countdown is Tuesday. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.